Welcome to the McCarthy Report, the podcast where I, Rich Lowry, discuss with Andy McCarthy the latest legal and national security issues. This week, what else? The latest on the Gaza War and the jockeying over Hunter Biden's testimony, by the way. If for some reason you're not already following us on a streaming service, you can find us everywhere from Spotify to iTunes. And please give this podcast and Andy McCarthy the glowing, indeed gushing, five-star reviews they deserve on iTunes. And now, without further ado, I welcome to this very podcast through the miracle of Riverside, none other than Andy McCarthy. Rich, how are you? Good. You took a couple couple weeks off. Yeah, well, I think I can now cell. get through this. Yeah, I can get through this now without either a coughing fit or, um, you know, a mouthful of turkey, one of the other. Yeah, well, the, my, the, my, the coughing fit thing has been going around. Oh, boy, it's miserable. I have yeah. to say it's miserable. So we have, as we speak here, as we record on Wednesday morning, a continuing quote-unquote pause and Israel's war on Hamas in Gaza. Hamas has been releasing hostages, still has a lot of hostages left, still a lot of cards to play. What's your take on the, the, the current state of things? Well, I think I'm even more pessimistic than I was at the beginning. And, you know, you'll, you'll recall, I was pretty pessimistic from the start, just because I didn't think Israel's stated war aims were achievable. And I think now what has kind of uh, overridden even, you know, some of my more basic concerns is that a lot of um, the war, which is now more an aborted military action than an actual war, it seems to me, but it's been superseded not for the right reasons, I think for cynical political reasons, um, by mainly President Biden's domestic political agenda. I mean, it, it, it turns out that um, the support for Hamas, I mean, we're supposed to say, I guess, support for the Palestinians, but if, if you watch these demonstrations and the, you know, the people wearing their Hamas regalia and chanting intifada slogans, uh, I'm not going to indulge these uh, niceties of, of trying to separate out the Palestinians uh, who elected Hamas from Hamas itself. Um, but I think it's been shocking to a lot of people how popular um, the Palestinians are and, and uh, derivatively how unpopular uh, Israel is with a sizable, important chunk of the democratic base, particularly young people, uh, and a lot of the money behind, uh, you know, which is hard left money, uh, in the democratic party, uh, which has always been, uh, pro-Palestinian and anti-Israel going back to, uh, the seventies when their darling was Arafat rather than Hamas. So I, I think, um, what happened here, Rich seems to me to be that, the hostages whose taking was savage um, and should have been, uh, the response to that should have been that Israel could conduct whatever operations it needed to conduct with the understanding that there, the conditions were unconditional surrender and release all the hostages. I mean, militarily, that's what made sense. But I think you're in this situation where 
the emotion and um, the Jewish mores that are attendant to uh, trying to get captured uh, people back dovetailed very smoothly with Biden's problem politically, which was he wants to support Israel, but his base is not there. So the the hostages gave him an opportunity to do what he needed to do politically, which is cause call for pauses, which are ever longer pauses, and to shift the focus of the war from the barbarity by which the hostages were captured and the and the people who were responsible for that to the imperative of getting them released so now what biden talks about as if this were uh, the main objective is how long we can have pauses for whether the pause uh, can evolve into a permanent ceasefire and whether they can get all the hostages back and those all on the surface seem like very laudable goals, except they're very far afield and take the focus away from what Israel set out to achieve militarily in the war and what the aftermath is going to be. Um, I've never thought it was possible for them to destroy Hamas, which is what the stated objective was. But I did think that they could do something analogous to what we did with ISIS, which was destroy, you know, Trump always says he destroyed ISIS. He didn't destroy ISIS, but he did completely eviscerate their ability to control territory, which is not a small thing. Um, Israel has more, bigger challenges with Hamas than we had with ISIS in the sense that um, Hamas is actually backed by nation states, including Iran, and its leadership flips between Qatar and Turkey, our you know our major non-NATO ally and our NATO ally, right? Who are who are uh, joined at the hip with a terrorist organization, um, and as a result, you know, it, as you said when we first discussed this, Israel can hunt those guys down, the, the leaders of Hamas just like they hunted down uh, the, the terrorists who carried out the attacks in connection with the 1972 Munich Olympics. But number one, that, that's going to take a very, very long time. And number two, you know, carrying out operations in a place like Turkey, for example, uh, is, has its own set of complications. With Turkey, you're already dealing with a, an Islamist pro-Muslim Brotherhood regime that periodically threatens, including in the last few days, to break Israel's blockade on Gaza. Um, it's not a simple thing to even if you could, even if you thought that you could get Mossad agents in place to take out some of these Hamas leaders when they happen to be in Ankara, wherever they are in Turkey. That comes with its own set of consequences that could be perilous. So I think a lot of all of this is fraught with complications for. Uh, for Israel, but I think the worst outcome from them now is that the the hostage return has so superseded uh, everything else, largely promoted by Biden, 
that the thought that you know you could have this pause for a few weeks if that's what it turns out to be and then we're just going to go back to military operations is just i mean it's mm-hmm. not realistic it's not conceivable so your your approach to the hostages would be we just can't we got to destroy hamas and then at the end hope to get as many of these people back as possible but you, right. you just wouldn't wouldn't have them in the in the um front, you know, top of mind while you're undertaking the military operation? Well, it's easy for me to say that, right? Because I'm not an Israeli. Um, That would be, if I were president of the United States and this was was an American problem, that would be what I would feel like I had to do. But Israel is a different place with a different culture. I mean, you know, when they, um, when they released when they negotiated the re- release of um, what's the soldier's name? Is it Gilad? Gilad Shalit. Uh, yeah. Um, what was that? Twelve hundred to one, <clears throat> something like that. Yeah, they held them and, for five years, and they traded that all that for one one guy. Yeah, and, and, and Israel was traumatized. I I, <clears throat> I happened to be there. I forget exactly when, but it was sometime shortly after he was taken hostage, and it was all that anyone was was talking about. You know, right. one one guy. Right. One guy. And, you know, they've ended up releasing people who were some of the main players in this atrocious attack Mm -hmm. on October 7th. Right. And now, Rich, by the way, you know, one of the things that it seems to have, have faded to black here is that as they're getting their hostages back with the encouragement of, uh, the Biden administration, which is uh, negotiating this deal with Qatar, our ally, right? Um, this is a three to one deal. You know, for every innocent they're getting back, they're trading three convicted Palestinian terrorist or violent criminals. And you, it's already having consequence in the West Bank, where some of these people have been returned and are already beginning to to stir up trouble. So, uh, the the reason I I, I mention um, Shalit is just that that to me is something that as a national security matter, as much as a as a human being, you have to feel for the hostage and the family. If you're like the president of a country and you're responsible for its national security, you have to look at the long term consequences. Um, and that that's a deal that they made that can't be justified on those grounds. But if you're in Israel where they have like, you know, I, I mean, there are Jewish mores, which are scripturally rooted, um, that, that speak directly to this obligation to get back captured people. Um, you know, that's kind of in their DNA, and who am I to judge that? It's not, you know, it's not for me to judge that. All I can say is, as an objective national security matter, they are, they have, they have been manipulated. You can say that in part they manipulated themselves, but they've been manipulated into a position where they can't achieve even what was achievable in the way of war aims, which was to dismantle Hamas as. as a functioning regime. And the reason I say that I think that that is now unachievable is you've seen the way now that the Biden administration's rhetoric has changed as the pause has extended over these hostages. So, 
in the New York Times yesterday, for example, they report that, among other things, American officials have told the Israelis that any coming military operations should not hamper the flow of power and water or impede the work of humanitarian sites such as hospitals and UN-supported shelters in South and Central Gaza. Now, how on earth, if they were, even if you suspend disbelief and you think that like after an extended pause, you can just go back to a war as if nothing had happened in the interim, even if you bought that, how are they going to have operations against Hamas if they can't fight Hamas where Hamas is? When we know that they precisely use humanitarian sites in order to store their arsenal and fight and, and conduct their operations. And we also know that they're joined at the hip with these UN officials in the Palestinian territories. Mm-hmm. So, and so that, what would you – yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say, and the other thing that, the, that Biden is telling them not to do is don't you do anything that's going to displace the population in the south. So here we have circumstances where the Biden administration leaned on the Israelis to delay so that they could set up corridors to move non-combatants from the north to the south. And now having achieved that, they're now telling them don't conduct military operations that displace people. How are they going to fight the war that way? Mm -hmm. So assuming Israel, which you're skeptical of, restarts the war in such a fashion that it that it can clear out Hamas so let's say it, it achieves its its objective in in Gaza what would your answer be to the question of what you do with Gaza after that so I don't think the um, the idea of having Fatah run the whole thing is just you know it's preposterous um, so to me, um, my, my solution to this goes back to, um, what I've been saying for years in connection with the, uh, democracy project, which the, you know, the Clintons pushed the, uh, you know, it was, it was, uh, the big favorite of the Bush 43 administration. There's a little less of it, uh, than, than, uh, met the eye with respect to Obama, but they push it as well. This whole idea that, um, you know, we have to replace, we have, we have to have like popular self-determination in these territories. Uh, even if we know that the result of like democracy as they define it rather than, you know, their definition of democracy in these, in these, um, delusional, uh, Sharia democracy promotion projects is like is like kindergarten. They have a popular election for the president, right? That's democracy. You know, I always point out to people that um, you know when I was in the first grade, I think I I ran for for class president. We had a class president, and all that. the nun was still in charge. Everybody knew mm-hmm. it was not a democracy. <laughs> you know? um, I didn't know you had these political ambitions from a from an early age. Well, I lost, so <laughs> thereby starting a pattern that's continued for, for decades. Um, they, they, they could use all your your state various uh, uh, hardcore statements against you. There's there's too much of a record even then. <laughs> oh man, that ship is so sailed. I know. <laughs> I know. But but um, I really thought that um, 
the model for how you make slow progress and don't get uh, don't go up in a balloon about what's what's possible as you hope that these societies uh, evolve into something that's more um, that the West can at least work with more and isn't so um, you know dead set opposed to us is like Egypt or actually uh, the current Saudi regime, which is to say they're not democracies. Nobody would think that they were democracies, but they're kind of benevolent dictatorships, even though the, um, the people who run them have, uh, have some monster tendencies, particularly in Saudi Arabia. But like, just take, take this guy in Saudi Arabia, right? Um, he, did, he, did he have Khashoggi murdered? Um, you know, when Khashoggi got himself in the middle of a, a spat between the Saudis and the Brotherhood, sure, he did, you know, and uh, he would probably do it again. But at the same time, um, he's a reformer as fundamentalist Muslims go. So women now have more rights in Saudi Arabia than they've had ever since that regime was in place. Um, there's less Islamic fundamentalism. There's less uh, Sharia brutal penalties uh, in that in that society than there has been in decades. Uh, in Egypt, if you allowed them to have popular elections, they would elect the Muslim Brotherhood, and we'd have a big problem, as we already saw. With Sisi, um, you know, you have to take the good with the bad, just like you did with Mubarak, just like you did with uh, with Sadat. But at the same time, the regime is essentially pro-Western, and the society is actually freer in many ways than it would be under a Muslim Brotherhood Sharia regime. So what I would like to see in Gaza, I don't know, if, I, I don't know that the Egyptians and the Saudis are um, up for it, but I would like to see um, leadership in the mold of Egypt or Saudi Arabia, perhaps with Egypt and Saudi Arabia participating in it. Now, you know, there's a lot of um, banter in the Middle East from these regimes about how much they love the Palestinians right up until the moment that they actually have to do something for the Palestinians. So they may not actually, you know, they may not be willing to, uh, to get their hands dirty. Obviously, you know, the Egyptians know um, because Gaza's on their doorstep what a problem Gaza is. Uh, and they, you know, they they have enough problems suppressing jihadists in their territory proper mm -hmm. without taking on Gaza. But I would like to see some kind of a a, a regime like that. Um, I would stop all of the uh, the democracy talk and the idea that you know we have to like stabilize the situation until we can have popular elections, and then they can elect the next Muslim Brotherhood mm -hmm. regime. Mm -hmm. You know that to me that's insane. Mm -hmm. So I would like to get the Saudis and the Egyptians involved. I'd even, you know, hold my nose and have Qatar involved too, if that's what it took to to make that happen. Um, but I would stop pursuing the delusional democracy promotion dream and try to get a regime in there that is actually stable, that gives them an evolving modicum of rights, and you hope that the institutions in the society evolve uh, in a way that's reflective of actual democratic culture rather than just 
casting yeah. votes. Yeah. Well, that's uh that's a uh, a tall order, but um, we shall uh, see what happens here, and obviously will uh, to be continued. And let me pause before we get to Hunter Biden and his testimony. Do a quick plug for NR Plus Digital Subscription Service at NationalReview.com. Your way around our metered paywall, your way to read as much of Andy McCarthy as you want. Your way if you sign up and log in to see about 90% fewer ads, especially the most obnoxious ads distracting you as you try to read our content will go away as if by magic. And also your way, if you want, you don't have to, but if it floats your boat, you can dig deeper into our community. You can comment on articles and blog posts. You can get invited to exclusive events and uh, on exclusive calls with our writers and editors and other conservative figures. So it's a great deal. And most importantly, it's a really crucial way to support our journalism. So if you're not already a subscriber, please consider subscribing today, tomorrow, the day after. We need people to pay a little bit for our content. Not a lot, just a little bit. So Andy, you have this uh, back and forth over Hunter Biden's uh, congressional testimony or perspective congressional testimony or theoretical congressional testimonies. Where does this stand? It's theater rich, which is like every week we say something else is theater, right? Um, so this is, this is the latest. Let, let's um, just take a step back. I, I, the reason this comes up is uh, the House Oversight Committee, which is part of the impeachment inquiry, uh, has issued a subpoena for Hunter Biden and various other Bidens to uh, to testify. I think Hunter's subpoena, if I'm remembering right, is returnable like the 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 twelfth or so of December. Um, so um, they you know they've issued the subpoena and they expect him to show up, and it's for a closed door deposition, which is what all of these subpoenas in these investigations are for. Now, there's so much um, that's that's fictional in this. It's hard to know where to start. But like the impeachment inquiry is not actually an impeachment inquiry because the majority of the House, if if it was permitted to vote, would not approve an impeachment inquiry. So they're calling it that by fiat. This is better understood as just a House oversight uh, investigation. And I think the Republicans, I understand why they did it, especially the pro-Trump Republicans in the House. They want to have a parallel impeachment proceeding going on while Trump goes through all of his uh, uh, indictments and trials. But that doesn't change the reality on the ground, which is that they can't even get approval for an impeachment inquiry, much less would they ever uh, you know, vote on articles of impeachment. Um, so this is all taking place in the context of something that's fiction, which is that there, you know, this notion that they're going to uh, impeach Biden in the end, and that's about as real as the Justice Department's investigation of the Biden family, which is also not something that's actually happening. So Hunter gets this subpoena. Now Hunter's just been indicted by the Justice Department, uh, and according to the faux special counsel. Uh, Weiss, David Weiss, he's still under investigation for other potential crimes, including his tax issues, which are so real that he was even willing to plead guilty to them 
uh, a couple of months ago, uh, although uh, as misdemeanors, not as as felonies. But you know, obviously, if you're willing to go into court and say um, I'm guilty of a couple of counts of tax crimes, that means that you, if you haven't pled guilty to them and that fell through, as we remember, uh, then you have a live Fifth Amendment privilege. And he's been indicted for these gun charges that we don't have a trial date yet, but presumably sometime next year he's going to be tried on that. So he's got a live Fifth Amendment privilege with respect to that case as well. So Hunter knows that he doesn't have to testify uh, because he's got he can he can take the fifth. And unlike certain situations where um, you have somebody who hasn't been charged and then, you know, you have this politically explosive thing where you bring the person in and the person takes the fifth and then they can make a big to do over it. I don't think anybody would actually begrudge t- Hunter taking the fifth. I would advise him to to take the fifth. He's under indictment. Um, so he knows he doesn't have to testify. But he also knows he doesn't want to go in there and and take the fifth. So he's trying and he's got, you know, lemons and he's trying to make whatever lemonade he can make out of it. So what he says is, I'll show up, which is not really a concession. You know, he's got a subpoena. Subpoena is not a suggestion. <laughs> you know, it's not an invitation. And we'd love to see if you could, you know, subpoena is like an actual order. He has to show up to testify. Um, it doesn't mean he has to testify, but he does have to show up. That's the, you know, that's the way this works. So he's saying, I'm willing to show up, which is big of him since he has to show up. Um, but I'll only testify if it's in public. Now he says that because he knows the Republicans are not going to agree to that. Why not? Well, for the same reason, the nine 11, uh, not the nine 11 commission, the January 6th committee didn't agree to it. The same reason that the, the Trump impeachment inquiry didn't agree to it. Um, they have a legal right under their rules to issue subpoenas that force you to come in and sit for a deposition. And in an investigative phase, a deposition is much more effective. If you if you've ever read any of these deposition transcripts, you know that unlike these insane, crazy killed five minute rounds that they have in public hearings in the depositions, they actually have lawyer investigators who, who ask lengthy rounds of questions. Like the, the rounds go on like for about an hour at a time. They they come back to it. Right. And you can develop lines of inquiry. You can figure out like documents that you should subpoena based on how the witness answers. It's like having somebody in the grand jury. It's not like mm-hmm. the, it's not like the stupidity of these congressional hearings. So they're not going to change the rules for Hunter and they want to have, you know, if he's willing to answer any of the questions, I doubt he'll be willing, but if he, if he's uh, willing to answer the, any of the questions, they want to press him in that kind of a setting. And, you know, later on down the road, if they want to have him in for a public hearing, they can do that, but they certainly don't want to forfeit their right to have him come in and, and give a deposition, mm-hmm. which is what any investigator would want. But see, the same the thing about this, Rich, is this is what happened. This is a game that gets played all the time. The Trump people, when they got you know subpoenas from the impeachment inquiry and from the January sixth committee, they all said, 
We don't want to go in there because what ends up happening is they selectively leak and the January 6th committee slices and dices our appearance like they like you know, we're, we're uh, being recorded to be on 60 minutes where they interview you for, you know, five hours and then they mm-hmm. play 13 seconds and make you look like an idiot. Right. So everybody says, um, I'm willing to do if it, do it if it's in public because they're hoping to get sympathy in the court of, of public opinion by taking that position. And what the investigators always say is you have a subpoena, you're required to show up and testify. Um, now, the, the media loved the Trump impeachment and the media loved the January 6th committee. So they gave very short shrift to the people who said, I want to testify in public. But now, you know, they hate the Comer committee. They hate the oversight. They hate the idea of a investigation of Biden. So we're going to get a couple of days of media play where they say Hunter is willing to come in and testify as long as it's in public. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, he knows that in private, the, uh, uh, you know, he's got information that could explode this investigation, right. yeah. which has tried to, to without success to show that a dime went to Joe Biden of, right. you know, right. so blah, blah, blah. Um, but it's all theater. He has to show up. Um, he doesn't have and, to and testify. Then, and then he'll, he'll take the fifth. I would think so. I'd be crazy yeah. not to, but now he'll take the fifth saying, um, I was willing to talk if they let me do it in public, but I have no alternative here because the fact that they wouldn't let me testify in public shows how insidious this is. Mm -hmm. And given the indictment against me and the possibility of other charges, what can I do other than take the fifth? Yeah. So if they, if they took him up on it in public, he would take the fifth as well, presumably. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So I've just been deposed once and, uh, I, I had to resist the natural urge given given my line of work to, to try to win arguments. Um, but my, oh, yeah. the high point of this deposition, I forget the exact exchange, but I pointed out a question was a tautology. We went, went back and forth. And uh, <laughs> I think I definitely established it was a tautological question. So. <laughs> <laughs> my, my, favorite pe- my favorite thing about preparing witnesses, you know, when you're doing mafia cases and those kind of cases, you get all kinds of witnesses, right? So what you always, you have some people who, when they, you know, when they go off on a tangent, they can just dig themselves in a hole and make yeah. things worse. So you tell them time and time again, listen to the question and only answer the question that's asked. Don't right. give a speech. Just listen to the question and don't answer anything other than what's asked for in the question. And invariably what would happen is the defense lawyer would then get get up and say to the witness, um, did Mr. McCarthy give you any advice about how to answer the questions? And the witness would say, yeah, he said, don't tell him nothing. (laughs) 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 And I, you know, I'd say, that wasn't quite what I said. (laughs) That's funny. All right, so the fraud trial, the Trump fraud trial is still, still dragging on and a key aspect of this now is the back and forth over to what extent Trump is going to be gagged. So where does this stand? Well, you know, I think the gag order is is really um, for all the hullabaloo about it. It's there is an interesting issue that's underneath it, which is one that's uh, that we ought to look at because it's it's really a uh, a light motif that runs through a lot of what the Democrats are trying to achieve here. And that is, 
they want to promote the narrative that Trump is responsible for all the violence. He's responsible for the violence at the Capitol. And when he speaks, even if it's just to what looks ostensibly like legitimate criticism, that that's a dog whistle for all the, the crazies in his base to harass, intimidate, and potentially worse uh, the people who are on the receiving end uh, of the criticism. And, you know, this is not, th- this is hardly, um, this is hardly a, a fantasy land, right? I mean, we've heard Trump used to, to warn people that like, if they didn't do this or that, then he would mm-hmm. sick his, tw- his Twitter feed on them. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And what that suggests is he was very well aware that if he criticized someone that he has some crazy people in his base who would, who would, you know, I, I don't want to say they'd go out and commit murder on the yeah, basis of that, right. but they would do, you know, they would do things that the law looks at as harassment and, you know, you know, uh, on, on this topic, one, uh, one thing an operative mentioned to me, political operative was that the, something that people haven't counted on a potential dynamic in the Iowa caucuses is you got to stand up and say, you know, I'm with someone else besides Trump. And this person thinks that actually this, this kind of harassment slash intimidation factor will be some suppressant on people being willing to to do that. But anyway, go ahead. Yeah, no, I look, I, I think that's the same reason why, you know, when these, <laughs> when these unions show up and they want to unionize a shop that's not you know, unionized, right? The first thing they want to get rid of is the secret ballot. Mm-hmm. Because yeah, the, right. for that for for that precise reason, right? So that's that's definitely a real thing. But here's the problem: it, it's Trump is constitutionally entitled to mount a defense, and he's also entitled to run for president under circumstances where, like, there's no candidate in the race, Democrat or Republican, who's inhibited in any way about what they can say about Trump's travails in these cases. Um, so you have the constitutional implications of shutting him down. Plus, in our country and under our first American jurisprudence, we're not supposed to indulge the heckler's veto, right? We don't silence people because third parties might act on what they say in an illegal way as long as the person who's speaking doesn't commit actual legal incitement. So the issue that's come up in these cases, and it's important, Rich, probably to note here that at the same time, the gag order in the New York fraud case is being litigated. Also being litigated is the gag order in the District of Columbia federal January 6th case, right? That was argued last Monday before the Fifth Circuit. Uh, I'm sorry, the D.C. Circuit. I think, by the way, Trump's going to lose. I think the panel... Is it two Biden judges and one Obama judge or, or uh, two Obama judges and one Biden judge? But I mean, you know, you know how that's going to go. Mm-hmm. Um, but one of the things that the special counsel is arguing in the federal, federal case is he's saying, look at what's going on in New York, where Trump criticized the judge and, all the, and right away, uh, Engeron and his, the, the clerk, or his secretary, you know, his legal secretary, who's been uh, the object of this criticism by Trump, they're saying that they're getting thirty to sixty harassing and threatening calls and emails every single day. That she's getting them on her cell phone. That you know, the chambers, the phone is ringing off the hook with people who are saying crazy things. Um, 
And even though I, you know, I have my skepticism about Engeron, I, I don't think he's completely making that up. I have no doubt that they're getting harassed. Um, I, I happen to, you know, my, my sympathy for that, I have to say, um, is limited in the sense that, you know, uh, long ago and far away, uh, I used to prosecute Islamic jihadists who were not like the most friendly people to, to prosecute. Right. So if you take an assignment like this, this kind of, this kind of stuff comes with the territory, but the profound constitutional issue here is you have this very real situation where Trump has a base that gets easily agitated and has a track record of doing some very disturbing things. Yet at the same time, we have this constitutional system where we're not supposed to gag people because third parties might act on what the people say. And in this instance, Trump isn't just a person. He's running for president mm -hmm. and he's mounting a defense in a legal case, which is a very public legal case and has been brought by political actors who are actually elected to their positions. So I, I think this is immensely complicated. So finally, kind of a blast from the past, we have a brewing debate over uh, FISA, Section 702. Real quickly, what's, what's up with this? Yeah, so Rich, this comes up every six years or so, right? They have to reauthorize this because every time we always say every time this comes up, the you know why don't they just per, uh, permanently authorize it? And they always uh, put a sunset provision in. And I think this time around, because of all the FBI abuse of FISA and because of the narrowness of the um, uh, of of the margins in the House and the interesting alliance between. Uh, the pro-Trump people and the pro-Islamist uh, left in the House, there's a real chance that they won't have the votes to reauthorize Section 702. Now, uh, we're gonna, we'll are gonna we end up talking a lot more about this. this. This will lapse at the end of December if they don't reauthorize it. And 702 is our main legal authority for collecting intelligence overseas against non-Americans. So it really shouldn't be that controversial an issue. It is controversial because it's been used abusively and pretextually. And, the, and the, unfortunately, the FBI has a, has a track record of that, of very recent vintage. Um, so there are some people who wouldn't, you know, just on principle and in their opposition to the FBI, they won't reauthorize it. But if you, if you halted it, our legal authority to collect intelligence would be suspended and our intelligence agencies would more than likely end operations or at least suspend operations, even though I think um, they would have constitutional authority to continue intelligence collection operations overseas against non-Americans, but that would be very, that would be controversial. Um, the issue in a nutshell and I, I hope we'll be able to develop this in a in a later podcast because it's really worth fleshing out some more. I'm going to try to write about it for the weekend. Um, but the issue is whether they're using the authority and can use the authority to monitor Americans. A lot of the criticism is overstated because, number one, 
the main purpose of this authority is to collect intelligence against non-Americans overseas. And number two, the thing that they complain about, which are these pretextual reverse targeting, this idea that you monitor a foreigner not because you're really interested in the foreigner, but you know the foreigner has contact with an American. Um, so you're you're pretextually monitoring the foreigner so that you can get the American's communications, that, that sort of thing. That's specifically unlawful under the statute. So when they complain about um, that practice, they're complaining about something the statute doesn't permit. So to me, that those criticisms... Uh, are overstated. What's not overstated is that I think there's a real constitutional issue here in that the because it's national security, you don't have to show probable cause of a crime in order to conduct the surveillance. Under the surveillance, Americans get incidentally intercepted. That's part of the reason you know, that's not, as as, uh, as Judge Mukasey wrote in a recent op-ed about this, that's a feature of the system, not a bug. Mm-hmm. You know, if we're monitoring someone who's a terrorist overseas and they're having contact with an American, we want to know that, right? Um, so Americans do get incidentally intercepted, and all those communications go into a database. The FBI, under the statute, has a right to access the database for information, including communications from those Americans, and to use those communications in criminal proceedings if you accuse the American of a crime. So in the normal criminal law situation, you would not be able to intercept even incidentally, the communications of an American, unless some judge made a finding that there was probable cause a crime was being committed. Here, you're collecting all this information without a probable cause of a crime finding, and under the statute, reserving the right to use it as if you had intercepted it under a regular wiretap or search warrant with a probable cause finding. I think that's a that that's a very naughty. I mean, there's there's pushback to it, but that's a that's a pretty profound constitutional question. All right. Well, that's all the time we have. This podcast has been produced by the incomparable Sarah Shuddy. Thanks, everyone, for listening. And thank you, Andy McCarthy. Thanks, Rich.